Steve mentioned earlier, we are well into the season of Advent. This is the third Sunday of Advent, as how it would be celebrated if this was the Church of England. And we're going to look at something um, in line with Advent, which is the season of preparation for Christmas, just on precisely that topic, and that is the whole issue of the Incarnation. That is when the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh. And there's a very clear passage which introduces this topic. We're not going to look at the Christmas story, the accounts of the birth of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke. That's for next week. That's for later in the Christmas season. But we are going to look at a very famous passage which talks about God becoming flesh and living amongst us. And that's right at the beginning of John's Gospel, the first 18 verses. So we read the following. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realised through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I don't know if you are familiar with the expression, a dear John letter. Some of you obviously are. If you're not, a dear John letter is a letter, probably a text or an email these days, that John, or whoever, whatever his name is, receives from the young lady of his dreams to say that she no longer wishes to be the young lady of his dreams. Not ready for a relationship, uh, let's just be good friends or whatever. Basically, it's a letter of rejection. I want to share with you a slightly different type of Dear John letter. and I'd like you to imagine that publishing houses, such as we have today, existed in the first century in Palestine. And if they did, a Dear John letter would probably sound something like this. Dear John, of course, thank you very much for your submission of the Gospel according to John. I have had time to read through your manuscript carefully and assess its worth and likely prospects for achieving sales. Unfortunately, I have to inform you that we are unable to accept your work for publication in our biographies section. Whilst I enjoyed reading your account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, 
who I do not doubt was a fascinating, complex and charismatic character, I have concluded that your biography does not appeal to wide enough readership to justify proceeding with the publisher process of publication. As I'm sure you're aware, there have been other biographies on the same subject in recent years, and it is hard to resist the conclusion that the market is saturated. We recently accepted a similar biography by Matthew, a, a former tax collector who I gather was one of your associates. But we did have reservations about his cumbersome style and worries that his long genealogy at the beginning might put people off. I have to say that your prologue in chapter one falls into a similar category. Your style is somewhat laboured and wordy and there is considerable unnecessary repetition of concepts and ideas. This is a pattern followed later on in the biography with Jesus of Nazareth repeating I am he or I am three times in one chapter without a clear explanation for this enigmatic phrase. I'm sure that your points could be expressed with fewer words and a more dynamic, engaging storyline could have been maintained. I'm also concerned that the idea of God becoming human flesh would cause offence amongst many potential readers. And the unorthodox teaching of after the alleged mass-feeding miracle of your biography's main character, offering his flesh to be eaten, would stir up unnecessary controversy. I hope you are not too disappointed by this outcome. I understand that you have other projects planned, including an imaginative account about the end of the world, involving angels, dragons and cosmic warfare. I would suggest that such a project is likely to attract a wider readership and would suggest that when you have completed this work, that you submit it to our science fiction or young adult departments. <laughs> I wish you every success in your writing career. Best regards, Elijah Scribblesworth, editor, biography section, New Jerusalem, publishers. Well, you've got to admit, though, he's got a point, though. I mean, reading this prologue, which is essentially what it is, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel... It's not exactly a page-turner, is it? Not exactly John le Carré. I don't suppose he ever got a, John, a Dear John letter. But look at the repetition. I mean, right from the, the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was, was God. Fine. Then you've got, he was in the beginning with God. Well, he's, he's just said that. Verse 3. All things came to being through him. Fine. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's pretty wordy, isn't it? It's pretty laboured. And he doesn't stop there. Verse, verses 7 and 8. John came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And then you've got a repetition. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. I mean, talk about labouring the point. There is a lot of repetition, and it's not surprising that some readers might be put off by that beginning of the gospel. Indeed, John does repeat a phrase at the beginning. In the beginning was the word. That the very first words of the gospel are a repetition of themselves, of course, of the beginning of the book of Genesis, which is, gives you, as a fairly obvious hint, we're talking about a new beginning. I want to look at six reasons why the initial impressions of that editor are not necessarily terribly accurate. And firstly, the first point is that this is a gospel which has got strong foundations. Gospel with strong foundations. For gospel, and I mean 
all four versions of the gospel, John being represented today. For gospel, you can, re- you can replace it with the words good news, which is what it, what, what it means. Good news with strong foundations. The first words are actually a, a clear foundation to the gospel. It says the word, in the beginning was the word, referring to Jesus. Now that's interesting because for Greeks who wouldn't not necessarily believe in a personal God, some would accept that the concept, some, some would not, but they would believe that there's some sort of rational principle governing the world. And that's what it means. The unspoken word still in the mind of God or whoever or whatever is behind the universe, the rational principle. For Jews, the word would automatically be understood as referring to God. So straight away, John has got his reader's attention. It's a very clever start. It's not off-putting at all. It's embracing any reader. They would all understand what is meant by the word from different um, standpoints. There's a form of writing throughout the Bible called parallelism, which involves a lot of repetition. Basically, it's two thoughts, one after another. Um, Sometimes it can be a complete contrast, darkness and light, or it can be a virtual repetition to make it clear. Psalm 27 verse 1 is a a classic example. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is, is, is repeated. The question is, is repeated effectively with slightly different, different words. And it's helpful for remembering. Don't forget that when the Gospels were written, we're talking about a pre-literate culture. Most people couldn't read. So they, the, the Gospel would not have been read by most people. It would have been heard. There can be contrasts or saying the same thing a second time to, to deepen the perspective and, and add em- em- emphasis. Parallelism would certainly have been in John's mind when he wrote the Gospel. So that's one reason why you've got the repetition. But there's more to it. We need to ask the question, what these initial verses, 1 and 2, 3 and 7 and 8, would have been like without the apparent repetition. Verses 1 and 2, if we didn't have verse 2 saying he was in the beginning with God or the same thing, the same person, he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God, if that wasn't there, we could have understood it or misunderstood it to mean, yes, Jesus was there, but not quite right at the beginning. He was there more or less at the beginning. But it's made absolutely clear in verse 2, he was there at the beginning. Jesus there at, at the start, the very start, and was God. It was not an afterthought of God that he decided upon slightly later. Verse 3 is similar. It seems a bit, bit wordy. The second half of verse 3, apart from him, nothing came into being or was made that has been made, that has come into being. Without that sec- that's second part of verse 3 we could misunderstand this as meaning everything was made by Jesus apart from Jesus himself because he was made by God but it's made absolutely clear that there is nothing in the category of made that was not made by Jesus he's excluded from the list of everything that was made because he himself is the maker he is God all things came into being by him 
So this is also repeated in, in Colossians 1. He's the firstborn of all creation. Through him all things were made. In fact, Revelation 3 makes that even clearer. Where he's introduced, Jesus is introduced as the Amen, that's God's emphatic yes word, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And that word for beginning means origin or source. There is nothing that, that comes before Jesus. He is the origin of all things. Which explains why uh, later on in this prologue, in verse 15 of John 1, that John the Baptist says, Jesus existed before me and he has a higher rank than, than I do. John the Baptist was in fact six months older than Jesus, so he was born earlier, but Jesus existed earlier than John the Baptist. By Jesus, all things were created, visible and, and, invis and invisible. All things were created. Verse 7, 7 and 8. If we didn't have the confirmation from verse 8, we could assume John the Baptist was saying when he was talking about, uh, when John was talking about John the Baptist being a witness to the light, we could understand it as meaning John the Baptist was pointing to himself as the light or a general principle, not another person. But it's made absolutely clear in what may seem a repetition. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And go on, on to verse 9, it's, there is the true light which enlightens everyone that comes into the world. It is a person, that is Jesus, who's coming into the world. So every time when we have an apparent repetition where it looks quite wordy and laboured, the second thought straps in the initial truth more securely. It is repetition, perhaps, but it's for a purpose. And we've got very strong foundations in that early part of the prologue. If you like, the first few verses, the first seven or eight verses of um, this prologue, the beginning of, of John's Gospel, is the prologue of the prologue. But it's very, very secure truth. It is absolutely clear Jesus is God. We don't have to work out what God is like or achieve some status by gradually improving our conduct. We just need to look at Jesus. Second thing about this, the gospel, the good news, is that it's good news with a purpose. It's very clear why the gospel was written and we need to be absolutely unashamed about it. The reason the gospel was written is that so that we believe verse 7 says so that all might believe through him we're not talking about a history book although there is history in it or a collection of sayings it's not there for our entertainment or our amusement although that may be a byproduct at times other passages in other gospels that we may come across over Christmas are preserved and recorded so that we might believe and that everyone might believe. That is the aim, that all might believe. It's not for a particular culture or social class or group of people. It's that all might believe. John 20, 31, towards the end of the Gospel, makes it clear that while more things could have been included in the Gospel, what has been included is so that we might believe and we might have life in his name. And in this passage... Life is compared to light. 
Life, the word life is used 36 times in John's Gospel. That's twice more than any New Testament book. And it's a whole affirmation of life throughout this book. Not surprisingly, as Jesus actually says, that I have come to give life in, in chapter 10. Darkness did not comprehend or overpower the light. You can use either word, by the way, of comprehend or overpower. It's not clear which one is used, but either way it means darkness hasn't a clue. The darkness has got no traction when the light of the world comes into, into being. And the gospel was written to reveal what God was like, to provide light and give life. Third thing about this gospel. It's a gospel that is well attested, which means there's plenty of evidence. It says that John the Baptist came as a witness to the light. Why do we need a witness? It's obvious that John the Baptist was God's appointed channel, but why have a witness? Couldn't Jesus just have come without someone preparing the way? Well, three reasons. Firstly, a witness was a legal requirement in Jewish law. For any testimony to be valid, you needed a second witness. So Jesus could testify about himself, so did John the Baptist. Secondly, by having the character of John the Baptist appearing on the scene before Jesus was, uh, began his public ministry, provided a measuring stick, a yardstick, so we can see who Jesus was and understand it better. There are many similarities between the two. They are related, of course, they're cousins. Both had miraculous births. Jesus born of a virgin and John the Baptist was born of a woman who was elderly and well past the childbearing years. And both lived godly lives. Both preached the gospel of, of repentance. And Jesus paid tribute to John the Baptist. He said that of all those who'd been born of woman, there's been no one greater than John the Baptist. He is the greatest man alive. Then, of course, Jesus in his ministry and his teaching goes further than John the Baptist. So what does that, if John the Baptist is the greatest man alive, what does that say about what Jesus thinks about himself? Certainly more than just a great man. He is God. And there's very clear and precise witness that is given by John the Baptist. And it is, it is reported everything that he said about Jesus is true. John 10, 41. Third reason why we need a witness is that the witness is a herald. The function of a herald was to go ahead of a king to announce his coming. And John the Baptist understood his role. He was the herald to pave the way for a king, that is Jesus, to proclaim his, his arrival. And once his role had been fulfilled and Jesus' ministry was underway, then he was quite happy to withdraw. His role had been completed. William Barclay, in a very helpful and excellent commentary, identifies eight types of witness that is given to Jesus. As a witness of the Father. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The witness of Jesus himself. He said very definitely, I am. I am God. He also said, if you don't believe me, believe the works. It's a witness of the works, what he did. There's a witness of the scriptures, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of those uh, with whom Jesus had contact. 
John, right of the John the Apostles, personal witness, and those of the, that of the other disciples, and the witness of the Holy Spirit in our heart. A witness will carry weight. So, in a sense, it's not surprising that some of these verses at the beginning of John's Gospels appear heavy, and they, they can be a bit of a, a wrestle through. So, if you're looking at it for the first time, do not be put off if it seems a bit heavy. It's supposed to be heavy. It's not supposed to be lightweight, easy reading, but it is immensely rewarding. The text could be shortened with fewer and lighter sentences, but as it stands, it carries greater weight. Just as gold, incidentally, we're seen as the most precious metal, and I gather it's not because of slightly different colouring, it's because it is heavy. That's why it's very difficult to perform a, a robbery of gold because it's, they are very heavier, gold, gold bars. It's a weight to the, the, the writing in the gospel. Incidentally, the word glory has also to do with weight. There's a weightiness about, about the, the glory of God. It's a lot to take in, not to be treated, treated lightly. Fourthly, we're talking about a gospel that is powerful. It's good news that is powerful. Verse 12 says that to those who receive him, to, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And at this point in the, the narrative, there's an, actually an honest admission. It says that Jesus was not accepted by his own people, or most of them, indeed his own family. And it is reckoned that in his lifetime, None of his family, his immediate family, actually supported him, although James, his half-brother, after the resurrection, did so. It was very embarrassing for a rabbi or a spiritual leader not to be, have the backing of his own family. The Bible does not hide this. It's very honest about it. But those who did, did believe in him, who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, this word receive... It's quite significant. We're not just talking about mental assent, that we acknowledge that Jesus is a great teacher or even acknowledge that he, he is God. The word receive is, is understood in the same way as taking something on or putting something on, putting your shirt on. You have to do something physically in receiving Jesus. And it's also used in the sense of welcoming somebody. If you were to welcome someone, that does require some sort of action. If Pete were to knock on my door and I opened the door and said, hello, Pete, I might be really enthusiastic say, hello, Pete, great to see you. How are you? And Pete will say, yeah, good, thanks. Equally enthusiastically. I may even repeat myself and say, it's wonderful to see you, haven't seen for ages, and leave him standing at the door. I may be quite effusive in my... Delight in, in seeing my friend. Great to see you. And a couple of minutes later, I'll say, well, it's been nice to having this conversation. Look forward to another conversation soon. Goodbye. I've not invited him in, not engaged in any conversation beyond that. But when we come to, to know Jesus for the first time, that involves actually welcoming him, coming into my life, spending time with him. And it's not something which just happens 
at the beginning, it carries on through our Christian lives. If you've yet to make that step of, of asking him into your life, you need to welcome him. There's not, there must be some step of welcoming Jesus through a prayer, encouraging him to come into my life. But how many of us as established Christians in our quiet times might say, hello, great to see you, and mention the odd prayer here quite quickly, and then goodbye, see you later, and off we go again. Hmm, guilty. The word for right to become a a child of God actually means power. The Greek term exousia does mean a right in the sense of entitlement, but it also implies the power to be able to do something. It's not just legal permission. It should mean that you can do things that you previously could not do. That might involve spiritual gifts, for example, or things that you do as a Christian which you were not able to do before or couldn't conceive of being able to do. When we become a child of God, we enter a new relationship. We receive the present. We believe it. We receive Jesus and receive the present. We are born of God. And in chapter 3, we have the phrase born again or born from above. And that confirms what we have in, the, in this prologue. It's not by physical means, not by flesh and blood, we're born of God. Which is great because no one can boast of heritage, whether we're Jewish or, or otherwise, British, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what our background, we're born from God, not by any physical means. Fifth point about the gospel is it has got a gospel that is real, for want of a better word. The signature verse of this prologue is probably the verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word for flesh in Greek is the word sarx, S-A-R-X. Sounds a really ugly word, sarx. Sounds like a swear word. Well, near enough, it, because its whole uh, emphasis was all about bodily indulgence. And the idea for Greeks who saw matter as evil and God, if there is a God, to be totally holy, the idea of God becoming flesh was just completely anathema. It's not an exaggeration to say it's the equivalent of God becoming a pornographer or a prostitute. But in fact, that is the depth that God has has descended to save us. God has climbed into our sewer to deliver us from our sewage. No one is too ugly for God to reach, such as his love. No one is unworthy. He came for the ugliest of, humanis- of humanity. And it's interesting this, in this verse 14, two things. Firstly, it says, we saw his glory. Now, whenever you see the verb to see in John's gospel, it refers to physical sight. It's not a vision or a spiritual insight. It's actually seeing with your own eyes. When John says that, we saw Jesus. And it also does not mean a casual glance. It means that John and the disciples studied Jesus carefully under all possible conditions, favourable and unfavourable, over a period of time. It's a careful study to make a decision not done fleetingly or or flippantly. 
It's real and physical. So we need to see the whole of the verse. The word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. And it's an intimate, close relationship. The beginning of verse 14 is often quoted, but the whole verse belongs together. A physical experience. But it also says we saw his glory. In the Old Testament, you couldn't get close to God and, 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 see, and see his glory. But it, when Jesus came, it became visible. Flesh and glory are in the same verse. And glory is not diminished by Jesus coming in the flesh. Unlike some of our human idols. I remember once Wendy bought a couple of tickets for my birthday to see a famous comic writer that we both admired, having read many of his books. And he's going to give a talk in Sturminster, um, sort of an entertainment evening. We look forward to it. And it was good-ish. It was an all right sort of an evening, but we both felt he's a better writer than speak. It was just did not live up to expectations. Something of the gloss had gone. I had to be honest. Not so with Jesus. When we meet him and experience him, we can't see him physically, but when we meet him in our heart and experience a deepening relationship with him, we are not disappointed. His glory is fulfilled and more. And the great thing is that we have the right to ask to, to see his glory because he's dealt with all our ugliness, that sarks, that horrible fleshliness. He's dealt with it all. Finally, the gospel is a gospel, good news of grace and truth. It's the perfect combination. It's another repetition. Grace and truth is mentioned twice in this passage for good reason. Jesus is the contrast between himself and Moses that provides the law, the legal framework, but Jesus realises grace and truth. Important combination. If you have truth, and truth only, then there's a harshness. There's no forgiveness. There's no hope. Just the the grind of trying to, to fulfil the law perfectly, which we can never do. If you have grace only, then there's weakness. There's no righteousness. There's no power. Because yes, you have, have forgiveness, but no, no guidelines, no clear, clear pathway to follow. Jesus fulfils both of those. And that's possible because Jesus is the only one of its kind. That's what the word in the last verse, in 18, means he was the only begotten son of God. Unique, only one in this category. And he's able to, to forgive our sins and come into our lives and change us. This is an amazing passage. There's so, there's so much in it. And we may think it's a little bit laboured at the beginning, but in fact... John has compressed so much into those few verses. We could look at it time and time again and be finding new things. I would encourage you to use this passage as a real foundation for Christmas, for Christmas devotion, to spend time meditating, reflecting on this passage. Because I found it really helpful 
it really puts in, into perspective the remaining chapters of the gospel. It's what it go, goes back to. And it's worth reflecting, seeking the Lord. What does he mean by these, these truths in these 18 verses? We take in the fact that Jesus is God and he's unique. We take time to gaze on his glory and receive him, spend more time with him and to make him, allow him to make us a more effective witness. And perhaps answer the question, how can I embrace the power of being a child of God this Christmas season and beyond? Let's pray. Lord, what amazing gospel you've given. Thank you that you became flesh and you came amongst us in all our weakness and our ugliness. You forgave our sins and you gave us new life. Thank you for coming into our life. Lord, Lord I pray that you will help us in this Christmas season, this remain, the remaining days of Advent and into Christmas and beyond to get a real understanding of the truth of the incarnation, that God became flesh, that you loved us so much that you came and dwelt amongst us and you allow us to see your glory. Lord, teach us more in the days ahead. In Jesus' name. Amen.